Hey, welcome class. Did you know you're in summer school? I'm your teacher. My name is Professor Joe or Teacher Joe, whatever you want to call I want to give you a vocab word for you to learn today. It's probably one you know already, but it's a good reminder class. The word for today is civility. Look at this definition of civility. Civility means I'm courteous. It means I'm respectful. It means I'm polite. Class, we, in our modern culture, need to learn some civility. You understand what I'm saying? We need to learn some civility. It seems like most of us would agree that I want to be described by other people as civil, right? That's a good thing to be, and most of us would go, yeah, I want to be civil. I don't want to be the opposite of these things. I don't want to be discourteous, disrespectful, or rude. We'd be honest about that, and we could all say, I want to be civil. And yet, if you look at America today, I think you would be also agreeing with me when I say that civility is dying in our culture, that there is a lack of civility in our world. And frankly, we have moved beyond not just being courteous. We don't listen to each other. We're not working together for common solutions. There's a growing disrespect among most Americans. There's a growing rudeness. And if you go from disrespect to rude, it's not easy to get from rude to I hate you. And it's not a big jump from I hate you to violence. We have a growing problem. Should the death of civility matter to us as Christ followers, class? Should the death of civility matter to us as people that say we follow Jesus? And I think the answer is pretty clear that if we're saying we're following Jesus, this Jesus we follow is immeasurably civil, isn't he? I mean, every different kind of person, every different circumstance, is Jesus ever rude to anyone? Do you have examples in the Bible you go, well, see how he's rude and discourteous and disrespectful there? No. Every interaction with people from every different type, Jesus was civil and respectful. It's why he, before he leaves, says to his disciples, here's a new command I want to give you guys. Class, pay attention. New command I want to give you, love one another. I'm leaving. But by this, the world will know that you're my followers, my disciples, if you are disrespectful and discourteous and not polite to one another. No, if you love one another, it's a mark of who we're intended to be as followers of Jesus. And I know what some of you are thinking, oh, here we go. Pastor's getting revved up about loving people who are different and different from me, and so I don't know. And you start to think about checking out because you just go, really, you're going to get revved up about love? And the answer is, heck Yeah. I'm going to get revved up about love because it is at the core of who we're intended to be as followers of Jesus. Paul, in the book of Galatians, is dealing with Christ followers like you and me, and he makes a statement about religion. He says in Galatians 5, 6, he says, circumcision or uncircumcision, that has no value. His ancient way in that context of saying all the religious things you do in church, the religious practices, the things you call your religious Things, they have no value. Here's the only thing, he says, Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through 
being rude, angry, and impatient. No, faith expressing itself through love. And what he's saying is, if you have a vertical relationship with the God of the universe and you've experienced his love, then the way this is expressed this way is love. This can't be real if this isn't real. If I'm loving people, that puts on display that I have a real sincere faith. You know, it's so interesting because I can never love someone if I'm not civil to them first. Did you hear me? If I'm not polite and respectful and courteous first, how would I ever get to loving someone? And if the command is that I'm to love, and I'm never courteous or respectful, how will I ever get there? My faith is a fraud. So this is just a light way to enter today's sermon. We're gonna talk about a cool idea from this woman I'm gonna call Caring Ruth. We're on this journey of learning from different people in the Bible how their faith is alive and growing and changing. And we're gonna look today at this woman who is incredibly civil. Her name is Ruth, and her story is found in the Old Testament book called Ruth. Ruth chapter one, so if you have your Bibles, turn them on, open them up. Ruth chapter one is where we're gonna land. That's sort of the beginning of your Bible. Following along with me, you can download a copy of the scriptures or bring a paper copy. It's good to follow along class as we work our way through this passage. So Ruth chapter one, we're just gonna look at one chapter of a really short book in the Bible. It's only four chapters long. It would take you 15 to 20 minutes to read the entire book. Ruth chapter 1 is a great snapshot of what's going to happen, what it looks like to be caring and civil and loving and kind and very compelling story. And just a couple interesting facts about this book, Ruth. So this is in the Jewish Old Testament. And what's so unique is that in this Jewish Old Testament, there's a chapter, a book called Ruth, and Ruth is not Jewish. She's not ethnically Jewish, and she's not, when we first meet her, following the Jewish God. And yet, they would give real estate to a woman outside of their clan, outside of their ethnicity. I find that really fascinating. I also find this fascinating. In the book of Ruth, all four chapters, you don't really see any really major supernatural impacts from God. Like I can't say to you, hey, turn to Ruth chapter three, and what you're gonna find is God miraculously shows up and does this really powerful, cool thing. You gotta see it. No, actually God's kind of like behind the scenes in the book of Ruth. You almost don't even notice he's there. And these people in the book of Ruth, there's a number of main characters. They're everyday people that you would meet at Alberta's Tavern. They're just normal, everyday people that are working through the problems of their lives. And the problems they're working through in Ruth are the same problems that we are going through. What you see in Ruth is you see they're working through poverty, dealing with poverty, dealing with immigration, dealing with racism, dealing with people that have different ethnicities, dealing with death. The characters of Ruth are dealing with everyday problems, but there's no supernatural, like, big cosmic moment. It's just everyday people who, as they go through these things, they're not even begging the supernatural God to do something. They're just living out their daily lives through the ups and downs, putting their trust in God, and God is working through them, through their civility toward one another. Ruth chapter 1 Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilon. They were from a really hard word, from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Like, there's some biblical words, like, can I get an amen? I don't know how to pronounce them. So they were from this weird named town from Bethlehem and Judah. The, the deal is there's this famine and there's a family and they're leaving their home country to go find food. And the opening lines of this chapter, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. That's a historical tag it's kind of like a hyperlink that should make us go, oh, something hap is happening historically. It's pointing to a time in Jewish history where there was no king, there was no parliament, and the Bible describes this time in Israel's history this way. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what they saw fit. So problem number one in this culture, in this moment, is that there's chaos in their land. There's no king, there's no parliament, everyone's doing whatever the heck they want. Add to it problem number two, famine. There's no food. So no leadership, and now no food. And there's this man who has two sons and a wife, and he goes, well, I gotta find food. So he leaves Israel and moves to Moab. Now, that's not like you and me leaving Pennsylvania and going to Ohio. This is a big deal. For an ethnic Jewish man who has an inheritance in Israel to leave Israel and move to Moab is kind of like an Israeli today leaving Israel and moving to Palestine. That's a big deal because Moab and Israel hate each other. They have bad blood between them. When Israel was coming out of Egypt into the Promised Land, they said to Moab, hey, Moab, can we kind of cut through your backyard because we got to get to our new home? And Moab's like, no trespassing, stay out. Israel hates Moab for that. At another point, king of Moab says, I'm going to take a part of your country and I'm just going to occupy it for 18 years. Israel hates Moab for that. So for this Jewish man to leave and go to Moab, he must be really desperate. He's really hungry. He's trying to provide for his family. This is a big deal. Can you imagine him trying to explain this to his family, his friends? Hey, we're leaving and going to Moab. His Jewish family and friends are like, you're doing what? And then when he gets to Moab, I'm sure they're rolling out the red carpet for him there, right? And saying, oh, welcome to our town. We're so glad you're here. We hate you. And yet, this guy moves and shows up in Moab. But check out what happens next. Things get worse. Verse 3, now this dude, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So now this woman's living in a foreign country. Naomi loses her husband and is left with her two sons. She's trying to feed them in a foreign country. Verse 4, they, Naomi's two sons, married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth. Ooh, goody, weddings, I love weddings, except they marry Moabites. And in the Old Testament, God commanded them, don't marry outside your ethnicity, outside of your religion. They explicitly did what God commanded them not to do. 
They do it anyway. And after they'd lived there about 10 years, both two sons also died. Now Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. So things go from bad to worse, right? First, they leave their country, famine. Second, they get there, everybody dies. She's living now in a foreign country with two foreign daughter-in-laws, three women and no men. That's a problem because in the ancient world, the men were the economic engines of their society. So women couldn't own property, men could. Women couldn't have jobs, only men could. So now for Naomi to be left without husband, without children, now for these two daughter-in-laws to be left without husband, without children, what the heck are they going to do? What's going to happen now? And when things seem the darkest, that's when God's faithfulness shows brightest. Verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return to Israel from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah in Israel. So things are going to start changing now. Naomi's dealt with hardship her entire life in Moab. Now God is calling her home. Verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. I mean, this is a terrible scene. Naomi's turning to her daughters-in-law and going, don't come with me. There's no hope on the other side of this border for you. When we get there, people won't like you. You don't have jobs. You don't have money. You don't have anything. Stay here. Stay in your own country. Marry people here. Start a new life together here. Don't come with me. Verse 14 says, at this the daughters-in-law wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. One daughter-in-law is going, I'm, go I'm going. I'm not going with you to that foreign country. I'm staying, and I'm going to start a new life. But Ruth goes, no, I'm not leaving you. Even though when I get there, nobody will like me, even though I have a different ethnicity, a different religion, I'm going with you. There's nothing that's going to stop me. Listen to what she says in verse 16. Ruth says this as she's clinging to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I mean, something's going on here, right? There's something behind the scenes that's taking a place. Because who wants to go with their mother-in-law anywhere, right? I mean, like, that's just, 
Let's just throw that out there. But for these individuals, you have Naomi and you have Ruth, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. And they have, on paper, no reason to stay connected. I mean, they're from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different religions. The only thing that connected them together was someone who was dead. And now, for the hope and the future of Ruth, she should just stay and part ways. But no, they cling together. What is going on here? And although he's not mentioned, God is the central character holding these two very different people together. And I would submit to you, it's God's care for Naomi, this Jewish woman who relocated, that caused Naomi to be again caring for Ruth. And as Naomi cared for Ruth, Ruth was changed. And Ruth began to carry, care for Naomi. And it's this circle of care and kindness because God was at work behind the scenes in the life of this woman, Naomi. Now remember, she's a Jewish woman who grew up in Israel, and God had made promises to Israel. God said to Israel, you'll be my people and I will be your God. And if you're faithful to me, I will provide for you more than you can ever imagine or ask. But if you're unfaithful to me, there'll be consequences to your decisions. God made that promise, that vow to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel vowed back to God, yes, we will follow you. We will be faithful to you. But when this story opens, Ruth chapter 1, and it says, and there was a famine. That's the biblical author's way of saying the famine had something to do with the unfaithfulness of Israel, meaning that Israel had not been faithful to God, and because they were not faithful to God, there was a famine, a consequence for their rebellion. So re famine breaks out, Israel is not following God, and this dude, this father, something, he goes, listen, I'm not going to go to God to provide for me. I'm just going to take my family and we're leaving. We're going to leave our inheritance. We're going to leave our people. We're going to leave our culture and we're going to start over somewhere. I'm strong enough. I'm going to provide for my family. I don't need that inheritance or that God. And he moves to Moab and guess what happens? He dies. And then his sons grow up and go, man, I'm going to get married. I see myself a hot little number Moabite over there. And God's command was, don't marry. Don't marry those women. But they blew off God's commandments. They did whatever the heck they wanted to do. And guess what happened? They died. And this is the Old Testament's writer's way of trying to say there's a connection to listening to God's voice and the result of our lives. There's a direct connection to how we carry ourselves and the result and consequences and the things that happen to us. And so now you have this woman, Naomi. She's, she's left in Moab with nothing but two daughters-in-law. And guess what happens? She hears God's voice. God says, my daughter, come back. My daughter, I've always been faithful. My daughter, I've always cared about you. My daughter, I always loved you. I always promised a supply for you. Come back to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My daughter, come back. And Naomi heard the call of God, her father, and decided to go back. 
But all the while, during her life and time in Moab, even though there was doubt in her life, even though there was struggle, even though things were hard, life was messy, there was something about the God she grew up following, the God that was alive in her, even though she was unfaithful to him, something about that God that began to percolate through her pores and began to impact her daughters-in-law. So the daughters-in-law going, we love you. I mean, why would someone with a different ethnicity, a different religion, at great cost go with you across a border unless there was something of the character of God working through Naomi to these women and changing the course of their lives? So much so that Ruth goes, your country, your people, your gods, they will be my country, my people, my gods. I'm not disconnecting from you. I'm with you always. There was something about God's character that worked even in a messy, messed up situation that changed the course of history for this woman. And that same love, that same care, That same kindness, that same compassion comes to us through Christ. So the New Testament writer, John, would say this in 1 John 4. I dropped this in your app. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love God, Christian today, Christ follower today, those who put their trust in Jesus. We love God because of what? How good we are? Because he first loved us. He initiated the love toward us. And John goes on to say, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they can see cannot love God who they can't see. And God has given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. So if I receive this love from God, I can't see you, God, but I love you and I trust you. How do I not offer this love to the people I can see? If I don't love the people I can't see, the logic is, then you can't possibly love a God you can't see. And he's inviting us into being individuals who use our love to change the world. Question for you, how civil, how caring has God been to you? I mean, have you stopped lately to take notice of your life, take inventory and say, has God been polite toward me? Has God been kind toward me? Has God been courteous to me? When was the last time you asked the question, has God been rude to me? Has God ever been disrespectful to you? No, he's incredibly compassionate, kind, faithful, patient. And I make all kinds of promises to God as a son. Oh God, I'll never touch that again. I'll never wander there again. I'll never do that again. I make these promises, these vows to God. And when I break them, because I always do, I always fall flat on my face. I always botch things up again and again. When I botch it, is God discourteous to me? Is he ever rude or harsh, disrespectful? You idiot, how could you do it again? Really, you did it again and again and again and he just backhands you? Is that how he treats you? Or he just ignores you? When you leave your spot, your place, when you leave your God and your success, your goodness, your 
all the goodness that God has for you, when you leave those things behind and you chase after things that are worthless, does God throw you away? Again, disrespectful or rude to you? Unkind to you? No, incredibly patient so that the moment when I choose to follow things that are not him, when I give in to my temptation, I listen to other voices, I fail, the moment I turn to him, he welcomes me back and I begin to experience his favor, his goodness, his kindness again. And if this is how God has treated us, sons and daughters of the Most High, who should be leading the way in this culture, leading the way of civility, kindness, compassion? You see, education and economics and politics aren't going to bring civility back to our country. One Christ follower, one person doing civil, kind acts to other people is what's going to change things. The moment I come back to God, He uses me to be a light, to be loved to other people. And I think the reason that civility is dying in our country today is we're plagued with an us versus them mentality. It's always me versus you. You versus me in all kinds of categories. It's my opinion on race, my opinion on economics, my opinion on sexuality, my opinion on gender, my opinion on immigration, my opinion on healthcare, my thoughts on gun control. And while I might have firm beliefs and understandings about these things, somehow if you cross my boundary and you don't believe and think the way I do, now you cross the line and you're my enemy. Somehow now I'm going to hate you so strong. Is that how God has treated us? No, not at all. Because whatever the topic, whatever the issue, one act of civility and care can change the world. And I'm not just trying to be like some kind of motivational speaker. It's true. One act of civility to someone, one act of care to someone can change everything. You go, how do you know? Here's how I know, because one act of violence changes everything, doesn't it? And if one act of hatred and one act of violence can have an incredible impact on our world, how much greater can one act of love and light and grace and peace? And if I'm not civil, who will be? If I'm not patient as a Christ follower, respectful as a Christ follower, kind as a Christ follower, who will be? This is our role. More and more, I personally am less concerned about why someone is where they are and doing what they're doing. I am most concerned about looking into the eyes of people and seeing them as individuals created in the image and likeness of God with a soul that will never die. And that's an opportunity for me to love and to serve and to care, to meet the needs of people. Because if I can be civil, if I can be polite, if I can be respectful, then I can love. And if I can love, the King of Kings who is love can change the world of one person. And if you don't believe me, keep reading the book of Ruth. The best summer reading you could have today is the book of Ruth. It will take you 15 or 20 minutes 
And I hope I've whet your appetite to read what happens in chapter 2, 3, 4, because what you're going to bump into if you read the rest of this story is a guy who is heroically civil and heroically kind named Boaz, who takes Ruth and Naomi into his home and at great cost to himself, protects them, supplies for them, and through his act of kindness and love, the world has changed because coming from Boaz and Ruth is born this great king named David. And one of this great king's great, 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 great grandson's name is King Jesus. And we wouldn't be sitting here today hearing about Jesus if it wasn't for the act of love and civility and kindness and care of broken Naomi towards broken Ruth, who bumped into each other and treated each other with patience and kindness, who then bumped into broken Boaz. And that love and civility and care toward one another changed the course of eternity for you and me. It starts with civility towards the people you disagree with, the people who don't share your political views, people that don't, you go, I don't get them, I don't understand them, they drive me nuts. Before you say one thing on social media, before you start raising any conversations, have you asked yourself, am I civil, polite, kind, patient, slow to anger and abounding in love? Shut my mouth, God, that I might be respectful to everyone I come in contact with because in and through that, I can show love, and in and through love, you will change the course of people's lives. God, please, please help us. We confess to you our racism. We confess to you our sexism. We confess to you the ways that we just categorically disregard people created in your image of that we don't agree with or we don't resonate with, we don't understand, just categorically remove people, speak gossip and slander about them. Please forgive us of that and help us to be agents of your love. Please birth in all of us, your sons and daughters who call Faith Church home and Christians around our nation, a desire to be respectful kind, polite, generous, patient. Only you can do this in us. We know that we can be agents of advancing your kingdom one person at a time as we walk with you, as we grow with you. Please use us. I ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.